In this sermon series, we're studying the wisdom psalms. These lyrical lessons to live by proclaim practical understanding for our daily lives while pointing us to Jesus, the very embodiment of all wisdom. This content comes from Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia, and you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. The first thing I grab when I start building a piece of furniture or... Uh, some uh, it was a car utility cart to pull behind uh, our riding lawnmower uh, was the last thing I, I built. And so it hasn't always been true, but it is now. The first thing I grab is that user manual, that how-to guide, uh, because I'm an idiot, and I've realized that over time, that if I don't start with that how-to guide, then by the time we get done, there's an extra piece laying over here and 17 bolts over here, and I have no idea what they are, and so I've got over my pride, and now I go to the, the how-to manual. I'd encourage you to, to do the same, unless you're just one of those masters of everything, which I've met some of those folks. You're annoying, by the way, but uh, I'm just kidding. You're not. I'm thankful for folks like that, uh, but I'm not one of them. Got to have that how-to, how-to manual. Psalm 37. Psalm 37 works out like a like a how-to manual. A how-to manual for living in a world where wicked people get away with it and even sometimes have success in the wake of mistreating people and and hurting people. It's a how-to manual for how to react when good things are happening to bad people and how to act when bad things are happening uh, to good people. And so we're going to go through it like a how-to manual. We're actually going to be there over the next, the next two weeks. And it's a great question, by the way, why do bad things or good things happen to bad people? Like we see it all, all around us. Uh, seemingly terrible people have success. And oftentimes seemingly good people uh, will have harm come to them or they won't be able to catch a catch a break. You see business owners who who treat their employees really bad rake in all kinds of cash. We see spouses who act like jerks right behind closed doors get praise as, you know, wonderful partners in in public. Drug companies will flood West Virginia with opioids and they'll make a killing off of it. Millions of of dollars. Political figures will line their pockets, this is very familiar, will line their pockets while their constituents, constituents' need of justice or relief from problems go go ignored. There'll even be Christian leaders, preachers of the gospel who will preach repentance and humility while at the same time they, they will not take ownership of their own shortcomings and their own sins. And on the flip side, you probably even know people, if you yourself have not experienced this, who who posture themselves with integrity and honesty and humility and generosity and faithfulness. And yet they seem to always get the short end of the stick. They seem to never be able to catch a break. And the question is, why? That's a bigger question than I'm able to answer. That's a question that I don't think we'll get an answer to until one day we're in in heaven forever. Then we'll perfectly see what God was doing in that. 
And believe it or not, on that day, we'll, we, when we recognize what God was doing, when bad things happen to good people and good things happen to, to bad people, we'll actually rejoice in it. But until that day, I, I don't think we'll have complete clarity. But what we can see is how, how we act and how we react. So over the next two weeks, we'll be in Psalm 37. These are the wisdom psalms. We're going through a series of wisdom psalms. And these are very practical how-to guide. Verses 1 through 20 today will show us how to react when bad things or when good things happen to bad people. How to react. And next week we'll see how to act in those same situations. So this week it will be, be about our reactions. Guidance for our reactions. Next week, guidance for our actions. This week what we'll see is this. Our reaction to wicked people's success must be rooted in God's presence and representative of God's promises. And I'll be honest with you from the just straight up from the start. The response that we're going to be called to when wrongdoers win is unnatural. It's seemingly impossible. It's it's countercultural. And that's why I've worded it this way when I say that our reaction To wicked people's success, it has to be rooted in something beyond ourselves. It has to be empowered by someone stronger and greater than us. And so it must be rooted in God's presence and representative of God's promises. Let's pray. Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please, please give us as the word, your word is open. And the truth of your word impacts our hearts. May we be transformed by it, by your grace. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The superscription of Psalm 37 is simple. Two words of David. We talked last week how these are actually, you'll sometimes see these, in, you'll see these mainly in the Psalms. Uh, they'll say normally more than that, of David to the choir master, that sort of thing. Uh, but these are actually part of the original manuscripts there. They're inspired, and and they give us information about it. And this, it's very simple. David is the author. David, the shepherd boy who became the king. But also what you need to know is David, uh, we'll see this next week in in the second half, he's writing this in his old age. He's up in years now as he he pens this, this song. And he has seen good things happen to bad people. He's seen it time and time and time again. He, he lived on the run. God's anointed to take the throne while Saul, who uh, had turned away from God and was now pursuing wickedness, chased him and tried to take his very life. David isn't just writing in a vacuum. He isn't just writing hypothetically. He's someone who had seen the very serious experience, the very serious pain of bad people being able to continue to reign and rule and lead. And he starts with our thesis for this first half of Psalm 37. Verses 1 and 2 say, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. This is our thesis. We'll come back to it here in just a minute. And spoiler alert, He puts the thesis for part two right up here at the front two, verses three through six. So it's a little sneak peek of next week. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend 
faithfulness. I love these verses. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. We'll come back to those verses next week. What I want to start by explaining to us though today is this concept, and some of you may have already uh, had someone talk about this when it comes to reading the Bible. There are places in the Bible, uh, the Apostle Paul is cited for this a lot in his writings to the churches, where he will divide his letters into two parts, or a certain chapter that he writes into two parts. One part will be indicatives. There are absolute realities about God, and he will talk about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, these unshakable truths, these indicatives. And then he'll move into these imperatives. If these things are true about God, how do we respond? How do we react? What are the imperatives on our lives? What are the things that we're called to? Indicatives and imperatives. But the Apostle Paul is not the only one that that does it. You're actually going to see it in Psalm 37. You're going to see uh, truths about God followed up by imperatives for how we should live. So that's an important way uh, to think about this passage. And it's going to lead us to actually start in verse 12. We're going to do verses 12 through 20 first, and then we're going to come back and do 7 through 12, because verses 12 through 20 are these indicatives about God. We're going to see some things about God that are the, the foundation for how we live in a world where bad people have success, where wrongdoers win. We have to know God first. We have to know these things about him. And what we'll see in verses 12 through 20 is that God will bring justice upon the wicked. He will. It is an absolute 100% guarantee. His timing might be different than ours. But the result will be what we long for in our hearts. Wicked people brought to justice. So we'll see truths concerning God's posture towards the wicked and his promises about the wicked. Psalm 37, 12, and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them, at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked. I love that. For he sees that his day is coming. Indicative number one, truth number one. If you listen closely, even now, as wicked people succeed, you can hear God laughing at the wicked. Hear me, he's not laughing at the suffering of those who they're oppressing. His heart breaks. His ear is close to those who are brokenhearted and, and, and being taken advantage of and harmed. What he laughs at is the posture of any human, right? Tiny little human in comparison to him who thinks that they can build their own kingdom and make it everlasting. They can't. Right? Like Hitler evil, horrendous. People suffered. Millions of people suffered under his reign. And God doesn't laugh at the suffering of those people. But he laughs at the heart of anyone like Hitler who would believe that he can have a lasting kingdom outside of his own. You see, kings and thrones get thrown to oblivion all the time. And only one throne stands forever. Because God knows the end of the wicked, he, 
He laughs like you would a child when a when a child like my, my boys will come at me like they're gonna like beat me up, right? That's funny. It won't always be funny. It'll be scary eventually, but for now it's still it's still funny. The Lord laughs at the wicked, truth number one. Truth number two, if you look closely, you can see God fighting against the wicked. Not only does he laugh at anyone who would even assume that they can create an everlasting kingdom outside of his, but he's actually fighting against the wicked, verses 14 and 15. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart. And their bows shall be broken. We see this sometimes today. Sometimes we'll see like uh, CEOs who are just terrible people paint themselves into a corner. Or we'll see, we'll see bosses who, who uh, push so far on their employees that finally everybody turns, turns against them. We'll see religious leaders who are prideful and arrogant fall in ways that are absolutely sometimes scandalous and, and even heartbreaking. But we don't see it as much as we'd like to see it. We don't see it with the finality that we would like to see it, but God promises that, that one day we will. We saw this verse last week, Psalm thirty-six, twelve, a look into the future by the psalmist David in that psalm as well. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. That is the future. For the wicked, every bow broken, every wicked weapon turned against the wicked ones who wielded them. And so if you look closely today, you can see God fighting back against the wicked. Maybe not as much as you'd like, but you can see it. And if you look forward into the future, you can see the complete dominance of the wicked at the hand of God. That's the truth, truth number two. Truth number three, if you pay attention, you can know the hands of God are with the righteous. These verses 16 and 17, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Here's the, the picture. No matter how abundant the acquisitions of the wicked may be, it's hard to carry all that stuff when your arms are shattered. Right? The idea is that they will not take any of these acquisitions with them into eternity because their end is final and guaranteed before the Lord. And so they may have stuff today, but they won't have it forever. And at the same time, those hands that, that work against the wicked gently, lovingly, firmly uphold the righteous. And it might not always feel that way. Sometimes maybe you are right now experiencing people um, who don't love righteousness uh, and you're under their thumb, maybe. You're experiencing their abuse or their neglect or their apathy towards you. And maybe it's difficult to feel the hands of the Lord holding you up right now. But he is. I don't know what else to say beyond that except that it's true. 
I feel the pain of not knowing. I've experienced the pain of not feeling the hands of God holding you up. But they're there, whether we feel them or not. So those are three truths so far. If you listen closely, you can hear God laughing at the wicked. If you look closely, you can see God fighting against the wicked. And if you pay attention, you can know the hands of God upholding the righteous. And then the last truth we'll see in this psalm, the last indicative, if you will, if God gives you faith, you can trust his rubric. Explain what that means here. Psalm 37, 18 through 20. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish away like smoke. They vanish away. He's painting a picture here. He did something similar in Psalm one In Psalm one. We looked at a farmer who plows through blood, sweat and tears, no fame, no glory, no accolades. But he puts that trough down in the field and you can see it. And even when he goes to bed at night, it's still there. You can see it. And then he puts seeds down in there and you can see the result of the work. There's a legacy. There's a lasting impact to what he's doing compared to a boat, right? Maybe the, the most beautiful yacht that you could imagine. Just out, you know, million dollar yacht. And everybody looks at the boat. How flashy, how beautiful. Those people must be awesome. But the wake of that boat is here and then gone. It doesn't stay permanently like the farmer's trough. Now today's picture in, in these verses is, is the same. A farmer who puts a trough down versus pasture land. Right. So like there's those who there's fields that are planted in for the growth of crops. And then there's there's fields that are uh, planted in so that the cattle can eat. Uh, my wife's family has a farm in Milton and they have two fields. One's called the back 40 and that's where the cows would start every spring. They'd eat all that. And as they did, first green and lush and beautiful, that grass would grow up in the other field. But as soon as they opened that gate from the back 40, became eaten and trampled down. That field, although it served the cattle, the field itself was dead, trampled down, eaten. The rubric of the world measures in light of now. The world measures success in the now. The kingdom of God measures success in the past, the present, and the future. The kingdom of God measures success by eternal standards. So we can trust that rubric, but it takes a lot of faith. Because we have to see things we can't see with our natural eyes. We have to, to see into the future God's promises coming true because we don't always see it, see it today. But if God gives us faith, we can trust his rubric. We can trust the way he measures things. So those indicatives lay the groundwork for the imperatives that are about to follow. If you listen closely, you can hear God laughing at the wicked. If you look closely, you can see God fighting against the wicked. If you pay attention, you can know the hands of God. And if God gives you faith, you can trust God's rubric. And on those indicatives, the following imperatives stand. 
Psalm 37, 7, our first imperative, the first thing that we're called to in light of these realities. In a world where wrongdoers win, God says this, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. devices. Imperative one, be patient. In a world where wrongdoers win, be patient. Note the parts of patience. First is a stillness. The word uh, there carries with it this meaning of silence and peace. It's like the Israelites before they crossed the Red Sea. If you remember that they've come out of Egypt, they're there up against the Red Sea, mountains on either side, and at that very moment, the chariots of Egypt are bearing down behind them, and they're freaking out, and, and Moses gives them their battle plan. He says, you need only be silent, and God will fight for you. Be patient, be still, God will fight for you. You must be patient. With that comes this belief that the Lord will show up as well. If you're patient for something, it's because you're waiting for something to happen. And so we wait. The Lord has promised to show up at the right time. And in the meantime, we don't fret. We're not agitated. We're not irritated. This is a major theme in Psalm 37, verse 7 says, wait patiently. Verse 2 says, the wicked will soon fade like grass. Verse 10 says, in a little while, the wicked will be no more. Verse 20 says, they they fade like smoke, they vanish away. Verse 36 will speak of a day when the wicked cannot be found. So be, be patient. Be patient in the presence of God. Be patient looking to the promises of God in the in the future. Knowing God is with you and keeps his promises is the only way we can be patient in a world like this, where the wicked win. So be patient. You don't have to rush to post on social media to defend your position. You don't have to be quick to to cry out, right, and defend your name and then drag somebody else's name through the mud while you're doing it you can be can be patient information travels so fast in our day by the way there's pros and cons to that but a lot of us have you ever driven with somebody right they're in their uh car and they're driving like five miles per hour under the speed limit this my mom drives like this i hope she never hears this sermon (laughs) and you're just driving along wishing she'd hurry up and then another car tries to pass on the four lane, and as that car gets beside her and is ripping by her, my mom starts to speed up, right? Like she has to go the same <laughs> speed as the car next to her. A lot of times we, we act like that in this world where information is flying at us. We've got to have an opinion. We've got to have a response. We've got to take a side. We've got to put down a definitive outburst of this is where we stand. This is who we are. This is what we believe. Be patient. Wait, we don't have to rush into this stuff. Imperative number two, don't waste your anger. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. Our churches and our country are so divided right now. 
I don't know what your social media feed looks like. I don't know what the conversations you hear out in the public square sound like. But there is. There's a lot of division in our churches and in our country today. We have to be careful. Or we'll join in to that divisiveness. We'll join in to that anger. We'll join in to that rage, right? I'll throw myself under the bus. How dare you redistrict the schools, right? In the wake of a COVID-19 pandemic, my kids are boxed out. They're supposed to transfer to another school. And, and what did I do? I shared it on my social media, and, and it was a little bit sarcastic. There was a little bit of snideness and in what I wrote. You see, it's not just the explosive, angry person who's a slave to anger. Some of us have found more sophisticated ways to express it. We can cut people in sophisticated ways. We can, we can push back or we'll, we'll shut ourselves off so that no one can get in. Or some of us, probably those among us who are being the most honest, just blow our tops but it's all rooted in anger. It's all the same, and we don't have to be angry. Be patient, and don't be angry. And that sums itself up in the final imperative, the final charge to the child of God in this psalm as we respond to those who are wicked when they succeed. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place... He will not be there, but the meek, the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Meekness is the way. Meekness is the way, and that's so countercultural. So countercultural. So not like me. Because meekness is weakness, right? Isn't that the way the world sees it? Man, some of the strongest people I know are the meek. Because they're people who have stood through attack after attack, through misrepresentation after misrepresentation, and they have shined forth humility and strength in that humility, strength in that Meekness. The word here is anav. It's a, a Hebrew word that, that carries with it humility and unpretentiousness. These are people who, even if they have certain things figured out, they don't come in posturing themselves like a know-it-all. Even if they have win upon win upon win, they don't come in bragging about how much they know and how much they've done. The only way you're going to see their resume is if you're interviewing them for a job. They don't have to share it with you every five minutes to tell you what they've done. That's convicting. For me, I'm not meek. But God is saying, be meek. Meekness is the way. This is such a needed word today, and I read this this week, and it just struck me in these times. 
The darkest parts of Christian social media are the places where people have convinced themselves that their sincerely held doctrines release them from the responsibility to display the fruit of the Spirit. How true of me. How true of us in these days. Maybe not all of us, but many of us can do better. We can be slower to anger. We can be more patient. We can be defined by meekness even in this day. And it's not just limited to social media, although it definitely plays out there uh, in many ways. I'm going to say this and hear me say this humbly and hear me throwing myself under the bus. Some of the most pretentious people I know are, are people who call themselves Christians. Some of the most prideful people I know are are people who call themselves Christians. Some of the most angry people I know are people who call themselves Christians. I'm one of the least patient people I know. And I'm a Christian. Some of the least meek people I know are people who, who call themselves Christians. And, and the flip side is true too. Some of the most meek people I know are Christians. Some of the least angry people I know are Christians. Some of the most humble people I know are, are Christians. But I know I can do better. And my call for all of us is to look at how we can do better. That's the call of Psalm, Psalm 36. And Jesus is the example. We read this last week. It's worth reading again. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus says, be like me. What was he like? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He got angry? No. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he, 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 he sought retribution. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I would ne I'm not calling anyone to be a doormat. Okay? It's not the point. I'm not going to belabor that point uh, today, but just hear me say that, please. I'm not calling anyone to, to sit in on being abused for the rest of your life and not take any action. But for most of us, that's not the issue. Most of us trend in the opposite direction. Most of us get upset at the tiniest little thing that comes against us. Most of us respond in anger at the tiniest little inconvenience. And what Jesus says is, that's not like me. Jesus says, respond with humility. We're called to follow in his steps, so might we do just that. Which brings us back to the thesis as we close. Fret not yourself. Because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. That's the imperative. That's the call. And it's rooted in the indicatives, the truths about God, verse 2, the promises of God, verse 2, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the, the green herb. So here's how we respond. Two things, child of God. Meekly live these imperatives. Refrain from anger. Choose to be patient and choose meekness. We shared this just a couple weeks back, this idea 
that we live in a world with a digital nervous system that creates this amb ambient anxiety. Information is coming at us so fast through the news and through social media and through just all these other sources, right? And even if you're not on social media, the people that you're talking to every day, many of them are. And so whether you, whether you like it or not, you're still being influenced by this information of this digital age. And it comes at us so fast and our prophetic edge is calm. This is Philippians chapter 4. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So may we meekly live the imperatives. And then lastly, to meekly live those imperatives, we must humbly own the indicatives, the truths about God. Seek to know God. Know who He is. Know the promises that He makes in this psalm. Know the promises He makes all throughout Scripture, in particular, His promises towards those who would live in wickedness. You'll never be able to refrain from anger if you don't know that God laughs at the, the wicked. You'll never be able to be truly patient unless you know that God is fighting against the wicked. You'll never be able to embrace meekness unless you know that the hands of God are, are going to crush the wicked and are going to hold you up. In the meantime, you'll never be able to embrace humility and reject pretentiousness unless you know how God measures success in this world and in His kingdom. So how will you do it? How will you actively pursue knowing who God is? So that in a world where the wicked win, in a world where bad people have all kinds of success, for the sake of your sanity, for the sake of your godliness, how will you seek to know God? We could list all the spiritual disciplines and they'd all be right. We could talk about reading the Bible and fasting and praying and Sabbath rest and service of one another and evangelism, and they'd all be true. I want us to see, too, as we prayer and scripture memory. Here's my challenge. Think about what really grinds your gears right now. Something you see on social media, a certain topic. Maybe it's something in your personal life right now. There's a person when they treat you this way or say this. It just irks you. It's worth the Google. Google's a very powerful search engine tool. To type in there verses to do with whatever. Find you a scripture passage that speaks to that thing that really grinds your gears and commit it to memory. Memorize that verse. Put it up on your mirror or whatever. Wherever you, however you do it, memorize that scripture. And when you start to feel that impatience, that anger, that pretentiousness rise up inside of you. You kind of grab that like a, like a sidearm. And you speak that verse. And then pray. Pray that the truth of that verse will be real to you in your heart. So that we might be people who are marked by meekness. That we might be people who are marked by humility. That we might be people who are marked by, by righteousness and and goodness. Our reaction to wicked people's success must be rooted in God's presence and representative of God's promises. So meekness is the way.
If you're not a child of God, you can know God today through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus meekly, humbly, patiently went to the cross. The perfect Son of God, we just read about it, was hung on that cross, and there all of God's wrath against sin was poured out on him instead of me. Poured out on him instead of you. That's what meekness, humility, purchased at the cross for you. And to know God and his hands that hold you up, and to know the God who will crush the wicked, and to know the God who stands with the righteous, all you have to do is believe on the finished work of Jesus on the cross and be saved today, that he can make you right with him and welcome you into his family. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that meekness is the way that Jesus showed us. And because he did, there is strength and power that belongs to the children of God to live in a world where the wicked win and the righteous often fall with hope and peace and patience and meekness and calmness. And so may we lean into the truths of who you are and may we be that way. Not weak people, meek people. Not passive people, humble people. Not apathetic people, but people who are calm, steady. I need growth in this area. Many of us likely do in this room. By your grace, give that growth to us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, we would love for you to join the work of God as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. You can learn more at our website at www.mercyvillage.church.